welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition in our Arbitral Insights podcast series. This is the second of our ISDS Horizon Scanning episodes. My name is Susie Savage, and I'm a partner in the international arbitration team based in Smith's London office. As ever, I am delighted to be joined by my colleague Patrick Beale, also an international arbitration partner based in our London office. Hi, Patrick. Hello, Susie. It's great to be back doing this podcast with you. Today, we're going to discuss some of the important developments in the six months since our previous episode and what we can expect in the months ahead. We'll begin with ICSID, where there has been significant change. First of all, I want to mention the latest nations to participate in ICSID. Angola signed the ICSID Convention on 14th of July 2022, making it the 50th African state signatory. As the second largest oil producer and the third largest diamond producer in Africa, this is a good step to increasing Angola's attractiveness for foreign direct investment. Secondly, the Kyrgyz Republic ratified the ICSID Convention earlier this year on the 21st of April, having been a signatory since 1995. Thanks, Patrick. Of course, the big talking point regarding ICSID is the recent amendments to the ICSID rules and regulations which came into effect on the 1st of July. A central theme of these amendments is reducing time and costs and improving transparency. So, as regards reducing costs, the rules now impose an obligation on the arbitral tribunal and the parties to act in an expeditious and cost-effective manner, and that's Rule 3.1. An expedited arbitration process has also been introduced. This prescribes reduced time limits for filings, say, for example, 40 days to file the respective memorial and counter-memorial, and a 200-page limit. Parties can also expect hearings to be held within 60 days of the last submission and the award to be rendered within 120 days of the hearing. The parties can opt into this quicker process by jointly notifying the Tribunal and Secretary-General. Similarly, the parties can, by agreement, opt out of the expedited process at any time, and the Tribunal itself may also decide that given the complexity of issues and other relevant circumstances, the proceedings should no longer be determined as an expedited arbitration. It's expected that this fast-track ISDS will be suited to low-value cases and hopefully encourage access to investment arbitration for small and medium-sized companies. So, Patrick, how then have the amendments improved transparency? Well, Susie, firstly, the new Rule 14 prescribes that parties using third-party funding have to disclose the identity of the funder and where the funder is a legal entity, the persons and entities that control it. This is aimed at avoiding conflicts of interest that could arise out of funding agreements. The disclosure has to be made at the beginning of the arbitration or immediately after concluding the funding arrangement. Although the amended rules don't require the disclosure of the funding agreement itself, Amended Rule 14.4 empowers tribunals to order the disclosure of further information on funding arrangements. Also, in order to make awards more widely available, 
parties are deemed to have given consent to publication if they don't object within 60 days of receipt of the award. And in any event, ICSID reserves the right to publish anonymized excerpts from awards and annulment decisions. Similarly, procedural orders and decisions will be published with redactions as agreed to by the parties, and that's pursuant to Rule 63. And just to add, for the environment, as part of ICSID's green efforts, all documents are required to be submitted electronically unless special circumstances apply, and the first hearing is to be held remotely and online. Also, the expansion of the additional facility rules will be pivotal in the increased prevalence of ICSID arbitration globally. Interestingly, Article 2 of these rules now allows for arbitration of disputes between parties where neither party is a contracting state or a national of a contracting state. And finally, the new procedural rules for mediation and fact-finding incorporate the principles of time and cost saving. It will certainly be interesting to see how popular mediation proves to be. It will, Susie, and only time will tell. Moving on from ICSID, I want to talk about modernisation of the Energy Charter Treaty. Agreement in principle on the changes was reached on the 24th of June, and the draft text is to be communicated to the contracting parties by the 22nd of August and is expected to be adopted in November of this year. The changes include redefining investor so that only investors that have substantive economic interests in the host state, as opposed to mere mailbox companies, will be protected. And investment now includes new technologies such as carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, biomass and synthetic fuels. And this is, of course, with a view to encouraging investment in renewables and low carbon energy. In response to concerns that the ECT was an obstacle to the clean energy transition, it will permit contracting parties to exclude investment protection for fossil fuels so that existing investments will lose protection 10 years after the amendments come into force, except for existing investments in coal, which will lose protection from the 1st of October 2024. And any new fossil fuel investments made after the 15th of August 2023, with some limited exceptions, will not be protected. The EU and the UK have already indicated that they will take advantage of this provision. There's a specific provision that reaffirms the right of states to regulate in the interests of legitimate public policy objectives, and such objectives include the protection of the environment, including climate change mitigation and adaptation. And finally, I want to mention that there's a new provision that prevents members from bringing ISDS claims against other members from the same regional economic group, and the EU is one such regional economic group. This will put an end to any new intra-EU claims and brings the ECT into line with the ECJ's decision last year in Comstroy and Moldova that intra-EU arbitration proceedings under the ECT were incompatible with EU law. Ah, oh, that last point is very relevant given the decision by an SCC tribunal in June of this year in the ECT arbitration case Green Power Partners in Spain. The tribunal in that case declined jurisdiction in a claim brought by Danish investors, accepting the intra-EU jurisdictional objection raised by Spain. This is the first time such an objection has been accepted by a tribunal in an investment arbitration. That's right, Susie. And what's interesting about it is that the tribunal, because it was seated in Stockholm, applied EU law as part of the curial law of the arbitration. 
what will be interesting to see is whether ICSID tribunals, which don't have a formal seat and therefore aren't tied to any national laws, will follow the Green Power Tribunal's position on intra-EU disputes. Unfortunately, as we are all too well aware, there can be no discussion at this time that doesn't include reference to the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 22, and thus its implications for ISDS. The Russian government has adopted various laws which could lead to the expropriation of foreign investments in Russia, as well as other breaches of international law. These include laws that allow local individuals and companies to use patents and designs owned by entities from unfriendly countries, without requiring payment to the owner, the registration of foreign leased planes as the property of Russian airlines, and the ability to seize assets and or property of foreign parent companies who have suspended operations in Russia. As many of us will know, Russia is a party to 62 investment treaties with states such as Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, South Korea, Spain and the UK, to name but a few. So, we anticipate affected investors may well commence investment treaty claims against Russia. Uh, presumably, Susie, enforcement of any award, especially non-ICSID awards against Russia, could be difficult. You raise a good point, Patrick. Although Russia is a party to the New York Convention, it seems highly unlikely that the Russian courts will allow enforcement in Russia of an award in such a dispute. However, it might be possible to enforce such an award against Russian assets held outside Russia, and it's even possible that sanctions regimes might be amended so as to allow the enforcement of arbitration awards against assets of the Russian state that have been frozen by foreign sanctions. So earlier, we spoke about the disclosure of third-party funding in the ICSID amendments. In the UK, the Law Commission is carrying out a review of the English Arbitration Act 1996. In this regard, the Law Commission has identified a number of potential areas for review, including confidentiality and sections 67 and 69, which relate to jurisdiction challenges and appeals on points of law, respectively. However, somewhat surprisingly, disclosure obligations surrounding third-party funding is not among the areas for review. There is currently no requirement for a party to disclose their use of third-party funding in arbitration proceedings seated in England and it appears that that will remain the position. The English jurisdiction, though, does appear to be an anomaly. The rules for the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, the ICC and the SEAC all include either an obligation to disclose third-party funding and its details, or the tribunal's power to order such disclosure. Hasn't resistance to disclosure of third-party funding arisen because parties were concerned that such disclosure could attract applications for security for costs from the opposing party, Susie. That's right, Patrick. However, some recent decisions in investor state arbitration show that applications for security for costs, which are based on a party's use of third-party funding alone, are not likely to be granted. And that includes, for example, Eurogas Inc. in Slovakia and the Bayview Group LLC in Rwanda cases, and thereby these cases should alleviate such concerns. The Law Commission intends to publish its consultation paper on proposed reforms in September of this year. Turning now to developments across the pond where parties to arbitration have increasingly relied on Section 1782 of the United States Code to obtain disclosure of documents from persons located in the US in support of non-US arbitrations. However, in June of this year, the US Supreme Court ruled in ZF and Luxshare that only a governmental or intergovernmental adjudicative body 
constitutes a foreign or international tribunal for the purposes of Section 1782 of the US Code. Private commercial arbitration and ad hoc investor state arbitration don't fall within this definition, and so Section 1782 discovery is no longer available in such proceedings. However, the application of the Supreme Court decision to ICSID arbitrations remains unclear and potentially open to argument. ICSID is a dispute resolution mechanism which is coordinated by the World Bank. It was established by international treaty and has more than 150 contracting states. And those states meet annually to participate in an administrative council. These characteristics, I suggest, mean that tribunals overseeing ICSID investor state arbitrations may well qualify as international tribunals under Section 1782, according to the Supreme Court's decision. That's interesting, and hopefully the courts will clarify that in due course. And when they do, we'll be sure to cover it in a subsequent podcast. On to Africa now, where on the 12th of July, the Africa Arbitration Academy published a model investment treaty for African states that's aimed at encouraging sustainable development and investment in the African continent. Africanization is a paramount theme. This prioritizes the principles shared across African states, such as protecting the knowledge and practices of indigenous communities, and incorporates the Ubuntu principle from Southern Africa concerning the importance of human dignity and equality as the overarching philosophy for the interpretation, performance, and enforcement of the BIT. Say, for example, Article 11b of the model BIT specifically refers to the protection of local ethnic communities' rights and resources. It supports only investment which doesn't harm communities' biological resources and promotes the preservation of cultural values. There are further provisions that maintain gender equality principles and inclusion. The model BIT is therefore a really important step to promote Africa for foreign investment whilst guaranteeing that investors cannot simply exploit Africa's plethora of resources unsustainably without facing legal consequences. Meanwhile, as anticipated in our last episode, UNSATRAL Working Group 3 continues its consideration of possible reforms to ISBS. On the 3rd of February 2022, the Secretariat of Working Group 3 published a draft note comparing elements of selected permanent international courts and tribunals, and this is with a view to the possible creation of a standing multilateral investment court. Then, at its subsequent meeting between the 14th and 18th of February, the working group began its discussions of the draft provisions on the selection and appointment of tribunal members for such a standing investment court. The draft provisions will be discussed at a future session. And the next meeting of the working group takes place in September, and it will consider, among other things, regulation of third party funding and the code of conduct for adjudicators, which we also discussed in the last podcast. Ah, yes. And I'm really glad you mentioned the draft code of conduct, which is being jointly prepared by ICSID and UNCITRAL. The latest draft was published in July, and it reflects some of the UNCITRAL working group three's discussions. The key findings include that provisions in any investment treaty governing arbitrators' conduct will take precedence over the code in case of inconsistency. There are limits on arbitrators acting in multiple proceedings with substantially similar characteristics, for example, the same measures, the same or related parties, the same provisions of the same treaty, etc. The prohibition will apply for the pendency of a dispute as well as for a period of three years following the dispute's conclusion. 
The adjudicator's confidentiality obligation is clarified to make clear that they are not prohibited from disclosing information that is already publicly available. And the code sets out categories of information that adjudicators must disclose in all circumstances regarding relationships with the parties, with the fellow arbitrators or with expert witnesses, interests in the outcome of the proceedings, for example, and past appointments. Thank you very much, Susie. And that concludes this episode of Arbitral Insights. I hope it's been a useful and practical review of recent and expected developments in investment arbitration. And thank you all very much for listening. We hope you'll tune in to the next edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series, and especially tune in to the next Horizon Scanning podcast. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.